Psalm chapter 46. I won't read through the whole thing in one sitting again like Stephen just did it, but we'll look at it as we go along. Am I the only one, or do you ever find yourself frustrated as you look at the headlines of what's going on around the world, what's going on in our own country? Um, Not just frustrated, even potential for real problems here where we live, uh, potentially afraid of what's going on. Has there been a time recently where you looked at the news and thought, wow, this is so, many, so thankful for all the good things that are going on out there around the world? We don't, we don't come across that very often. You know, you're shocked if you hear a good story, something good that happened to someone. It seems almost daily there's a new problem, new crisis, a new threat, a new disaster, a new sickness, a new fill-in-the-blank issue that arises in our world. And the question is, how should we respond to these things? We're... We're human beings. God's made us, our bodies are incredibly durable on the one hand and incredibly fragile on the other, right? So how do we respond to all the things that we see going on? And not just the distant things that potentially could become a problem here, but the things that are real potential for issues every day here where we live. Um, How do we respond to that kind of thing? Do we respond with fear, with being afraid? Do we muster up some sort of inner strength? Uh, and try to say, you know, I'm just going to do this, pull up myself up behind my own bootstraps and go for it. I think we're going to have an answer tonight in this psalm. Tonight we're going to see, in Psalm 46, we'll see exactly how we can survive in this temporary and unstable world that we live in. We're going to see two ways that God protects us no matter what is going on around us. Two ways that God protects us no matter what is going on around us. Um. Just a, a couple things before we actually get into this psalm. There's, there's a lot of action in this psalm. There's a lot of noise as you're reading it. We're not going to hear it, but, you, you know, like you're... This, this psalm is a masterpiece, a, a literary masterpiece. As you look at it, this is not just somebody that said, uh, let me write down a, a quick systematic theology of who God is and, and what he's done for us. It, somebody, obviously, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, and, and they took time to... The authors, the sons of Korah, took time to write out an amazing psalm and put this thing to where, as you read it, you're hearing loud noises. You're seeing incredible scenes um, throughout the whole thing. So just keep that in your mind uh, as you go through it. And in the midst of all these chaotic scenes that we're going to see here, we, get, we keep in mind God's our protector in these things. Whether the natural world or the man-made world is falling apart around us, we can trust in him. And it, as we read, we're going to see we're forced to use our imagination with this psalm. It does, you can't just sit back casually and, and think, oh, whatever. You, you, it's almost like you're watching a movie, you know, scene by scene. You're just sucked into it. Um, but before we get into the first verse, though, well, you got this heading at the beginning of it. It's, you got, you might, your Bible may have some sort of heading, such as God is our fortress, something like that. That's put there by people later on just as an aid, but you've got, probably have something along the lines of to the choir master or to the choir director there. Um, that, that appears 55 times in the Bible. You've got 54 of them in the Psalms, and then once in Habakkuk, where he brings it up in the last chapter of the book. Um, and it's just, it's like a marker for, this is the leader of the temple singers, and it's a note to him, this, it's to the choir master. Um, then you have, it says, of the sons of Korah. With, we could go into a, a study that would take us like a month going over the sons of Korah, this whole idea. 
Um, most of you are probably familiar with Korah, who rebelled against Moses, and Numbers 16 it is. He basically says, the whole congregation, all of Israel is holy. You know, what are you guys trying to pull on us here? We can all come before God however we want, pretty much. And Moses says, uh-oh, and he, gets, he says he falls on his face. Long story short, Korah gets destroyed along with other guys. But then you see a little bit later on in Numbers, uh, in chapter 26, it says, there's a little note that says the sons of Korah, it says, but the sons of Korah did not die. Um, and you can look at it in 1 Chronicles chapter 6 and see a kind of a genealogy of the sons of Korah and where they came from. But it's interesting, God, through this line of somebody who literally lost his mind uh, with, against Moses, now you have these guys writing psalms and performing psalms, too, these in the temple. So that's the sons of Korah. And then you have this other note, according to Alamoth. Uh, your guess is as good as any scholars as to what that means. People say, well, and some of your Bibles may have a note like something like possibly for soprano voices. Let's leave it at that. Possibly for soprano voices. It, in other words, it's probably some kind of musical term, and we're not going to get too deep on that because we don't have a clear... There's some things, especially the farther back you go in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we're not going to always have a great answers for. The answers that we're going to say, yeah, this is, that really satisfies me. So musical term, and then it, it says a song. Okay, um, let me just say one more thing before we get into it. The, the setting for this psalm, when it was written, there's, it's unclear. There's no precise date that we can nail it down and say this was the day this was written. It was written for this particular event. Okay, it might, it might have been written after some kind of natural disaster or after a military victory. I, maybe, but it may be more accurate to say that it was written to be used in various circumstances and to keep in mind what God can do at any time. Um, so just keep that in mind as we go through. We, don't, we can't go to a specific place and say, yeah, we're, we're definitely sure this is where it came from. And as I, I, just another side note too, throughout this, my outline, I'll say, I'll use the word us or we, and obviously we understand this psalm was originally written with Israel in mind. It's not, this is not, wasn't written to me as a New Testament Gentile believer. Um, however, I think it's fully acceptable for us to apply the majority of this psalm to ourselves, okay? So as we go through, just to keep that in mind, because sometimes that can get people off track. So we're, we can look at it that way. Okay, so I said we're going to see two ways that God protects us no matter what's going on around us. The first way is that he acts, God is our refuge when the world is falling apart. God is our refuge when the world is falling apart. Look again at the first three verses. We'll read through them. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Already in those first couple of verses, we see a lot of movement, a lot of action going on there. Um, the first verse here lays out who God is, and then the verses 2 and 3 show us, shows us where we can trust him. The first, we see that uh, he protects us because it is his nature in that first verse. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. This opening declaration provides the basis for the rest of the psalm. There's no question about, well, what does this mean? God is our refuge or strength, a very present help in trouble. Does that mean that he may or may not be there? Uh, we can't really count on him. We're not sure. No, it's, it's just 
laid out there in the open right at the beginning of this. He is who he is, and, and nothing can change him. No matter what goes on on this earth, he's going to stay the same. He is who he is. So let's let, think about these terms. It says God is our refuge. A refuge gives you the idea of a place of protection from the elements. Um, we live in Florida. We have storms in Florida throughout the summer where you're outside, and then it's, it's a blue blue sky, sunny day, and here comes this storm out of nowhere, and it's there, and all of a sudden it's pitch black outside, and there's lightning coming from everywhere. What do we do? We, if we're outside, let's say we're in our backyard, we're going to not stay out there with the lightning. We're going to get inside, and we're protected. It's, you have a refuge in your home from the lightning. Um, and that's this idea here that God is our refuge. It's a place that we can go and protection from, from things. We can go to him to be protected from things. Um, and this is specifically laying out this natural, like a natural disaster sort of situation, like the world is falling apart, as I said earlier. Um, so he's, he's our refuge. He's a place of protection from what's going on. It says he's our strength. It doesn't take a whole lot of understanding or explaining to go over that one. It reminds me of um, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where Paul said, or God says to Paul, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, my strength, you could even say, is perfected in your weakness. But his strength, he enables us to be able to face anything in that. Makes us, gives us the ability to endure through things. Um, and then it says a very present, I love this line, it says a very present help in trouble. Not a somewhat present, not I might be there some point along the way. I, he's a very present help in trouble. He's not distant. He's with us through everything. Uh, Spurgeon, we could all, if by the way, we could take, out Spurgeon's Treasury of David and just read through the his commentary on the psalm and be better off than what I can tell you tonight. Um, but I love the way he puts everything. He says, regarding that line, he says he is more, talking about God, God is more present than a friend or relative can be. Yes, more nearly present than even the trouble itself. He's a very present help in trouble. Um... Do you think of God in these terms, that he's our refuge, that he's your strength, he's a very present help in trouble? It's, it's Sunday night, we've been, most of us were here this morning, if not all of us, and then come back to church on Sunday night, and it's easy to think along those lines on a Sunday, and then you get up tomorrow morning, and you have to go to work, and all of a sudden, God doesn't seem so very present. <laughs> He doesn't, maybe you don't think of him as so much as your strength, you just got to force yourself out of bed, and and you got to deal with an infinite amount of problems at work or school or wherever. It's a very easy to forget, right? But do you think of him in these terms? This is would be great if we could lock this in in our minds and to be more consistent to think of God. Yeah, he's a very present help in trouble. Something's going wrong. He's here. He's not. He didn't take off somewhere. I'm not going to feel some warm and fuzzy feeling inside of me that he. As one man, a guy told me one day, you know, you're going to feel him in your belly. I don't, ex don't expect that, but he is here, and he is with us, a very present help in trouble. Um, so, okay, that, that first verse, he protects us because it's his nature. Then we see in verses 2 and 3, he makes us fearless during disaster. He makes us fearless during disaster. He, notice it says in verse 2, you have that statement about who he is in verse 1. Verse 2, therefore, starts with that, not doesn't go off in anything else. He says, therefore, we, because of who God is and how he can protect us, 
therefore we will not fear. Not, again, no, they're not teaching us to find an inner strength, uh, your, you know, find your chi or, or anything along those lines. He's, it's in God alone. He's our refuge. He's our strength. Therefore, we will not fear. And look, what he, look at how it lays it out here. There's one, two, three, four, though, uh, at least in the ESV, it says, though the earth gives way, though the mountains, though the waters, though the mountains. Think about being in these situations now that are coming up in these verses and then being able to say, therefore, we will not fear. If you were, Let's say we were here tonight and uh, you have... The earth gives way. You have that happen, you know, and you can, can you imagine? Like, I've been, I'm a Floridian, never experienced an earthquake, okay? Um, I don't know what that would be like, not particularly interested in experiencing one, but that's, you know, to say we will not fear, and again, not, you know, I'm so strong, I'm such a, you know, a mighty man or something like that that I'll trust in myself. Because of who God is, we're going to trust him. Therefore, we will not fear, he says. Um, the psalmist goes to an extreme situation here, multiple situations, kind of things combined into each other. Um, it's an earthquake that's so intense that mountains are falling into the ocean. And, it, you know, you imagine this. This, Again, this would, be, this would be in a terrifying situation to be in, let's be honest, if this were going on. Um, but he, he says, we will not fear. And Spurgeon says about this line, he says, with God on our side, how irrational would fear be? Um, as you, if you've ever looked at this, any commentaries on these verses, I, I think this is, I don't think we were wrong to look at these as though he's painting a picture of something that, that could happen, a literal event that could happen, not a figurative language about our problems. Okay, if that, does that make sense? Where I don't think he's saying in this section, you know, if your problems are as big as the earth giving way, the, the mountains. I think he's, he's painting a picture of something that could happen here when he says this. Um, so I don't think it'd be helpful for us to say, well, this is uh, later, like it says later on, oh, the nations are raging and the kingdoms are tottering. And I, I don't think we're good to go that direction. Just, I think it's, keep that in mind. This is a picture of something that could happen. And the way we should trust God in it. So that first line, though the earth gives way, um, the word give way, mean, it means to change. You know, we, we walk around on the earth, and we, of all things that we can assume in our life, we can assume that the earth is going to be solid under our feet. We don't think, ah, I've rolled out of bed. I don't know if I can put my feet on the ground or not. Is it going to be there? Is it going to move underneath me? We, we, that's something stable. Which we place a lot of trust in the stability of the earth. We build houses on it, buildings. We do everything on it. Um, so this has the idea of the earth changing underneath you and moving. It's not a situation I want to be in personally. But he says, therefore, we will not fear in that. Uh, and the, the psalmist or the people who are writing this are familiar with earthquakes because that part of the world experiences them. So this is not... Like if I were to write something about this, they've they probably have lived through earthquakes at this point, and they know what it's like. So you had that first picture of it, it kind of starts a process. Though the earth gives way, then though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, 
So you picture this. Uh, you know, you're looking at the mountains and they're crashing into the sea. I got to, I went to Alaska when I was about 15, and the mountains there are humongous. You know, they, you're you're walking around everywhere and you're literally your jaws hanging open. You're not breathing. You know, bre literally breathtaking beauty. And we we camped on a a beach there of all places in a place called Homer, Alaska, for about a week. And all around it, this beach, you can see these mountains. They're on the that are along the water and they're huge. And you know, again, can you imagine you're, you're there in a situation like that and you're, you've got this beauty all around you and then you, something is so, a situation is so violent that these mountains are crashing down into the sea, into the water. You know, these things that are, again, the mountains themselves, stable, so a picture of stability and uh, amazing creation and they're, they're crumbling down there. It's a wild picture. Uh, there's a quote by C.S. Lewis that I think is interesting, um, and it kind of goes along with this. He said, I do not see how the fear of God could have ever meant anything to me but the lowest prudential efforts to be safe if I had never seen certain ominous ravines and unapproachable crags. He's saying, I, I don't, he's basically saying that looking at some of these things in the mountains, these situations out there that are just, they, they make you say, wow. You know, how you couldn't get across that. You couldn't deal with that. You have a lot of respect for that situation, you know, to say, I'm not, you're not going to just go, uh, well, let's see how it is to slide down the side of this or something like that. You know, you have a lot of respect for, a lot of fear of that. And um, these are the very things here in this pic, in this psalm that are pictured as being moved into the heart of the sea. It's a wild picture, again, like I said. Then you have next, though, the water's, Though its waters roar and foam, uh, what are the two places that people love to go to vacation? The, the mountains or the beach, right? Uh, and there's other places, but those are two locations that everybody wants to go to. And the reason being, they're they're both. You go to the ocean, you look at it, and it's it's another thing, breathtaking and awe-inspiring, right? Like the mountains. Um, it's both of those places are a lot bigger than us. They just you know, it's something different. It's way different from our normal day-to-day -day life here. But then in, you have in this psalm, both of these things, these mountains, these, the, the sea, the ocean, out of control, crashing down. You know, you got mountains dropping into the sea. The sea is roaring and foaming. Imagine you're out on a boat in that. You know, that it's, that's terror. Again, these situations would all promote or provoke terror from us, invoke. Um, and that last line, though, the mountains tremble at its swelling. The mountains themselves trembling at the swelling of the waters. It, this is a wild picture and a crazy picture. And one that, you know, we would probably all, we'd, we'd feel we'd, somebody would be justified in being afraid there. But this beginning of this teaches us, no, because of who God is, we can trust him no matter what's going on around us. Um, He's a very present help in trouble. He's our refuge. He's our strength. Therefore, we will not fear. You know, whether literally the world is falling apart around us, we do not have to fear because he's there with us, and he will, he's going to be our refuge during it. He will be our strength during it. Could you say, I, I will not fear when this sort of trouble is going on around you and in front of you? I, I honestly think it would be impossible to have that kind of outlook on this situation apart from God. 
And then are you trusting in his sovereignty over creation, his ability to protect you in any circumstance? Every, like I said, every day we, we check the news. Somebody, probably tomorrow morning we get up and look, okay, the earth is going to, you know, the, the mountains are going to be crumbling soon or uh, an earthquake's coming or who knows what. Can we trust him in those kind of situations? And the answer is yes, of course we can. Okay, so the, the first way that God protects us, no matter what's going on around us, is that he's our refuge when the world's falling apart. And then the second way he protects us is this. He's our, God is our fortress when humanity is out of control. So the first three verses, you have this picture of the, the earth itself out of control. And then for most of the rest of the psalm, we're going to see humanity out of control. God is our fortress when humanity is out of control. So look at, uh, look at verse 4 and 5. It says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. You go from verse 3, the water's roaring and foaming, the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make God the city of God. You know, like you're, again, like I said, it's almost like watching a movie. You have this scene change from all that craziness, the mountains crashing and everything. All of a sudden, now it switches over to a, a calm river with streams coming off of it. Uh, so in verses 4 and 5, we see that he, he graciously provides for our needs here. Um, look at verse 4. It says, there is a river. Uh, does it tell us which river it is? Does anybody have good, any good suggestion as to what that river is? Because when you read this psalm, it doesn't, it doesn't say lay it out there. Here's what this river is. And then when you read commentaries, nobody lays it out there and says, this is what this river is. You have people saying, well, maybe it's the River Kidron. Maybe it's uh, the River Shiloh. Maybe it's the grace of God. Maybe it's a multitude of other ideas. I, I'll say this, okay? This is, I think this is one of those points, and... Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong later on, that's fine. I think this is one of those points where we're reading the Bible and there's sometimes where we have to be content that we're not going to get a great answer. Like I said with uh, Alamoth earlier, I don't know that we're going to get an excellent answer on what this river is here. You have a very neat literary thing going on where he goes from crashing mountains into the ocean, the ocean's roaring, to a calm river, but you don't have a, a very a crystal clear answer as to what this river is. Um, like I said, there's, and there's a lot of people that I respect in the commentaries that say that this is talking about the grace of God. I kind of have a hard time with pulling that from this situation. So I'm going to leave it there that we can say this much about this river. It's streams are making the city of God glad. And that whether that is through the supply of water, which is going to make a city glad that you have water to drink, um, or whether that is by God showing his grace to his people. Uh, it's, one of the, it's one of the two, and I'm okay with leaving it there. I'm sorry if you're not okay with that. And if you have a better solution to that, then you can come talk to me afterwards. But um, either way, it's God is providing for his people in this. Like I said, we're looking at how he's a fortress when humanity is out of control, and it starts with this really beautiful picture of a city 
that is glad that it has a river coming into it, these streams breaking out. By the way, let me note too that some people would say, you've got in Genesis 2 this river flowing to the Garden of Eden. Yet, and there's also in some other literature outside of the Old Testament, this idea of a river here and there. Yeah. Like I said, I don't, I'm not comfortable with giving it a specific title because I don't know that we can. Um, but you have that picture going on there. Okay, and then uh, you see in, it says it's, it calls it the holy habitation of the Most High, the city of God. This is an interesting picture, and it kind of makes you think of Revelation. Um, between that line and then the next line, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. I mean, it, it sounds a lot like the end of Revelation, not saying that's what this is here, but uh, God calls this his city, his habitation, but he's not pictured just as a commoner living amongst the people there. He's pictured as holy among his people, the holy habitation of the Most High. Um, he's not just a guy, an average guy there, but he... He's with his people, and he's providing for them. He's protecting them, and he's ready to help because he is with them. Again, he's a very present help in trouble. You see it, that he's in the midst of these people. She shall, because he is in the midst of his people, signified as a city, she shall not be moved. His people won't be moved. That city, as opposed to the mountains that are being moved into the heart of the sea, and what we're about to see in verse 6 where the, the kingdoms are tottering, his people, the ones that he's protecting, will not be moved, it says. Um, it, he stands at the ready, whether day or night, he's ready to help with the first sign of trouble here. So then you have in verse 6 through verse 9, you see that he defends us in the midst of danger. So the, the scene kind of shifts again. You go from that picture of a city that's, at rest, I guess you could say, that seems like everything is going well. God himself is there uh, watching over them. To verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. You've got, in verses 6 and 7, uh, you get the rage of the nations versus the voice of God. You, the scene goes from something peaceful to chaotic. There's a few things that I've experienced, at least in my life, that are as disturbing to witness as somebody in a fit of rage. Uh, if somebody is, up, is really upset, it causes anyone else that's around to stop and see what in the world is going on, right? If you're, let's say we're at Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> let's say we're not at Walmart. Let's pick somewhere else. No, we're, and let's say we're in line at Walmart and you see somebody go nuts. This happens all the time, right? You, I mean... Everywhere you go, somebody's upset, and it causes everybody to stop. And say, what in the world is happening over here? Um, we all stop to see what's happening, and rage produces terrible outcomes. Whether it's physical harm to victims or the material harm to whatever is in the path of the, the rager. Um, honestly, the, the worst things I've ever seen in my life were the results of rage, uh, it, which is ultimately sin, right? But it's... It's rage. People are completely, they're letting the anger go and their frustration go, and what they can do is terrible. It's awful. Um, so then it says the nation's rage, not just one person raging, which can do a lot of damage, 
One person can do a lot of damage by themselves, and this is an entire, describing entire nations raging. You think about what just one person can do when they're upset, and then you multiply that by all the people in a nation, nations, plural, and imagine the horror and destruction which could result from that. Not, it's not a pretty picture that's starting to be painted here. <clears throat> the nations are raging, and this is the kingdom's totter. Um, you picture somebody who's really angry, really upset. They're, they're physically and mentally unstable, right? And they, you have that idea of, again, not just one person. You have a picture of a kingdom. It says the kingdom's totter. You, you, know, you picture somebody that's really mad, that's out of control, and they're, they're unstable and tottering, I guess you could say. And you have the picture of an entire king, of kingdoms, plural, doing that. It's a vivid picture of just how, of a crazy situation starting up. Um, And then look at the second half of verse 6. You have the people completely out of control at the beginning, and then you see God utters his voice, and the earth melts. He speaks, and he brings the madness to an immediate end. Doesn't show any kind of panic on his part, no rushing around, no boasting about what he's going to do first. He simply speaks. He uses his voice, the same instrument he used to create the universe, to bring all this madness to a halt. And it says that the earth melts. And you got, what a picture again. This whole thing, there's so many pictures in here. Just so, wow, wow, wow. Every time, you, every line, there's something else there. This is, he said, it, he doesn't just prevent further destruction here, he, or merely silence people. He, he destroys it all with the word. It's over. And you, again, we have the earth is, in our minds, is stable. Something, it's a symbol of stability to us, at least for the time being. But now here, you have it melting because of God's command. And again, this is why I think this psalm was written probably as more, I hate to use this word, but I, it kind of fits. It's more of a generic type of situation, or generically looking at situations, not, this is not something that happened, obviously, because the earth didn't melt away in the Old Testament times, right? Um, look at, real quick, this reminds us of Second Peter chapter 3. You can listen or, or flip over if you'd like to. Second Peter 3, 19, or 3, 9 through 13. Um, uh, starting in verse 8, he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should re reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are awaiting for, or we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Interesting. You know, you have it back in the Old Testament, this, this picture of it there, and then that is what's going to happen one day, ultimately. Okay, back in Psalm 46, uh, verse 7, you have this 
this first of two reminders in this psalm, almost like a chorus, if you will. He says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is, he says that, that Yahweh, the, the commander of, of angel armies, is with us. Not, he doesn't send off some little guy to, you know, uh, like in It's a Wonderful Life, if you've ever seen it. Clarence, a little angel that doesn't know anything, can't do much for you. He doesn't send off some guy to you like that. The Lord, Yahweh, is with us. He's with us, with, uh, with me, you know, the, the sinner, the guy that's disobeyed him a million times. I can't even count how many times, right? And with each one of us uh, that belong to him. He's with us. And it says the God of Jacob is our fortress. Again, you can flip over if you'd like, or you can listen in Genesis 32. Jacob, if you happen to be reading through the Bible in a year or something, you might have just read through this. Jacob is not an outstanding uh, example for us all to follow, right? And we won't rehearse his whole life, but in, Jake, in Genesis 32, he's afraid his brother Esau is going to destroy him and his family because he's done a million wrong things to him and lied and deceived his way to uh, Esau's blessing and birthright and everything. Um, but look at how he prays in Genesis 32.9. At least this is something that, this is good. He says, uh, Genesis 32.9, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. And he goes on to ask for protection and deliverance from Esau. But what he says in verse 10, he says, I'm not worthy of the least of the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. So, and again, without rehearsing his entire life, he, there's J Jacob's testimony himself. When we read the God of Jacob is our fortress there, that's, that's who he is. It's God who is faithful to Jacob, not Jacob who is faithful to God all the time, right? You have a picture of amazing faithfulness to God's promises that start before Jacob was even born. So you had the God of Jacob, God who is faithful to to sinners, he is our fortress. Now you have a picture of fortress. You have not just a refuge from the elements, protection from the elements. You've got a place of protection in a battle. And at the time this was written, that's often going to be a place that's high on a mountain somewhere. This is a place of protection from humans as opposed to a place of protection from the elements. I guess you could say you could make a little bit of a distinction with it. Okay, and then... It, in uh, verses 8 and 9, you have a, a view of the after, aftermath. Um, uh, you have a new scene beginning here in verse 8. It switches from the nations raging and the earth melting and God's people being protected in him as in a fortress to a, a post-battle battlefield. And you, it says we're invited to behold the works of the Lord here. We see in verse 8, come, behold the works of the Lord, and they are intense. 
It says, he has brought, look at, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. You got, God is pictured here almost as a, like a warrior walking among the dead on this field, and he's destroying their weapons out there. You were commanded there, come, behold the works of the Lord in this picture. And you, it says in verse 9 that he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. God alone is capable of something like this, right? This is, there's no peace treaty, there's no nation, there's no union of nations uh, that's going to be able to end wars while this world is going on. And it's going to be able to prevent the start of new ones. Um, just listen to the, to the following lines here, to the noise that's in them. It says, he, makes, uh, he breaks the bow. Think about that. I mean, just that, yeah, he's out there. You picture God out there destroying. He's, this, it's over with. This battle's over with at this point. And the noises of him breaking the bows out there on this field. And it says he shatters the spear. And then you've got chariots over here that are burning, he's, that are just burning up. He's, he's, bringing, he's brought an end to all this. It's over in this picture. This is our God here, again, remember. He is not one to be trifled with or played around with. He, and he's the one that we should fear. When we look at this, you say, wow, this is not, this is not a, you know, a, Jesus is our homeboy, right, or something like that. This is very, this is no joke, this picture that's presented here. Then you have, in verses 10 and 11, you have a command, he commands us to trust in his protection. After all the noise and the insanity of the previous verses here, we come to this command from God himself. Now God himself comes and speaks in this psalm. He says in verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Uh, you might have different translations. as something like cease striving, be still. There's a couple different things out there. The idea of this, you could think of letting something sink down or relax or let it drop. It's like the idea of like you get home after work or whatever. Tonight when even you go home, you lay down in your bed and you sink into your bed and you relax. You, you're, you're letting go of your control of whatever you thought you were controlling out there. Um, and then you trust in that, you know, you do trust in your mattress at that point, too, that it's not going to crash underneath you, right? So he's saying, be still, relax, let it, let it go, let it drop. And he says, know that I am God. Um, oh, let me back up for a second. He says, we need to be still because we can't control any of these things anyway. Um, and the, towards the end of Job, you know, you have... Job and his friends have been talking and talking and talking and talking forever, and they never stop. And then finally, God steps in and talks, and it's worth listening to <laughs> for a while. And he, at one point in chapter 38, he asks if God, or asks if Job is able to control the earth 
with the implied answer of absolutely not. He says, have you ever in your life commanded the morning um, and caused the, the, the sun to come up? And then later on in chapter 40, he asks if Job's able, able to control mankind. And the answer, implied answer there is absolutely not. There's no, no, you can't. And that's what we have in this psalm. You have the earth out of control. You have mankind out of control. And then we have the answer here of what we can do, be still and know that I am God. The all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign God who holds every life in his hand, um, he's the one that we need to turn to and that we need to trust in. Not in, not in us. There's no changing his plans. There's no confusing his mind. No defeating his purposes. We can be still. We can cease striving. And we can know that he is God instead. Um, I will say this too, just as a side note, because when I read this, I immediately think of Stephen, of all people, saying, let go and let God, just joking around. Um, this is not the idea of, oh, well, I never do anything at all. And God does everything, right? But this psalm is focusing on a specific idea here at this point. It's not talking about everything else in the world. It's talking about this here. We got all kinds of situations that are out of our hands anyways, right? And we can trust in him instead of trying to work ourselves to make something happen in these kind of situations. You be still and you know that he is God in these kind of situations. Um, and then he says, I will be exalted. We can be more sure of this, that line, I will be exalted. We can be more sure of that than anything else in the universe. This is the ultimate purpose of history. This is the promise that gives us hope, because if God's not going to be exalted in the end, then we have no assurance of any other, any other promise in the Bible. His final exaltation ensures our salvation and our glorification. If he's not going to be exalted in the end, then let's... Uh, eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? But he will be exalted, he says. This is in his hands at this point. I will be exalted. And look where he says, among the nations, and I will be exalted in the earth. First, among the nations. This is a, it's a warning, and it can be taken as a, a gracious promise to us as well. To those who do not love God, it's a terrifying warning of future punishment for sin. And the resulting vindication of his holiness, too. I, imagine you're one of these nations raging against him. You're among those people. You're, and you're living that life. Think of the punishment that's going to come from that. You, when you see him for who he is and you know him for what he has really done, that's a terrifying warning there. I will be exalted. And meanwhile, you've been trying to exalt yourself your entire life. And you come to the end of it and realize that didn't work out so well. Um, but for believing Gentiles, I will be exalted among the nations. This is an Old Testament preview of the gospel, right? Because he's going to be exalted among us who are not part of the nation of Israel. We're, we're just out here doing our own thing, right? Um, it's an Old Testament preview of the gospel. I will be exalted among the nations, whether through their judgment or through saving them. And then I will be exalted in the earth. Uh, 
look over real quick at Romans chapter 8. Keep one finger here in Psalm 46. We'll flip back to Romans 8 again in a minute. So just hold on to both spots. Romans chapter 8, and look at verse 18. He says, I, I, Paul says here, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You get this idea here in Romans 8 that the creation is one day going to be set free from its bondage to corruption. And one day God will be exalted in the earth as well as among the nations. One day he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth too as well. Um, and then like I said, you have, we've got a second reminder or a second chorus here at the end of the psalm, verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And it's a good thing to be reminded of as you're reading through this thing that he is with us. He's our, he is the one that's our fortress, our protector, no matter what's going on. Let me, let me say one thing, and uh, we'll be done here in just a second. Is this psalm saying that God's going to protect us from every natural disaster and every possible attack of an enemy? No, not saying that. He says who God is in the first verse there, and then he says, therefore we will not fear, though these things happen. I do believe it's tr teaching us to trust in God as though he will protect us in every situation. He never teaches his people to be afraid of their circumstances or problems. And besides saying that we should fear him, there's no other time where we're taught to be afraid of, of what's going on around us. We're taught to trust in him instead. Uh, it's, he very well may take us home during a hurricane here in Florida or a terrorist attack or who knows what could happen, right? But may we be trusting in him if that time ever does come. So we've, we've seen that God protects us no matter what's going on around us. He's, he acts as our refuge when the world is falling apart, and he acts as our fortress when humanity is out of control. And I think this is fitting we could, to look at at the end. If you go back to Romans chapter 8, let's look at verse 31. Kind of a, a, from the New Testament, uh, the same sort of idea is what we've been looking at in Psalm 46. What then shall we say to these things? Romans 8.31. What, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Earthly things, the dangers of humanity. 
As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all of the treasures that we can find in it. There's so many good things for us to see, and we're, we're thankful for it. We just ask you, please, to help us to live our lives trusting in you, trusting in you as our refuge, as a fortress, as our strength, a very present help in trouble. We, we need a constant reminder from you of who you are because we get off track so easily. So please help us tonight and the coming week. Help us each day as our lives go on to, to learn to focus on you more and to, to trust in you as we face different situations. No matter what's going on, help us to trust you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.